Tim Haig Reads Books, presented by Tim Haig. When the dust settles, we will observe that more books have been written about new labor than about almost any other administration yet, including Mrs. Thatcher's febrile season in the sun. But let the Peter Mandelsons and the Alastair Campbells and even the Tony Blairs make room. Steve Richards of The Independent has written the most incisive, authoritative and readable account yet of the implausible story of Gordon Brown and New Labour. Tim and Steve discussed Brown's astonishing longevity at the top of British politics, his relationship with Tony Blair and why there is nobody else from that government worth talking about. Today, Tim Haygreed's books is talking to Steve Richards, political columnist for The Independent, and the book is Whatever It Takes. Now, Steve, I think it's fair to say is one of our most uh, distinguished political journalists. You're certainly one of the most quoted. I think everybody everybody reads you. Whenever they, they quote a columnist on the, on the uh, TV or the radio, it's always you. Sometimes. You find that? No, no, oh, no, no not enough. That the, you get very frustrated if you're not quoted. I always hear you. Thrilled. No, uh, whatever it takes is uh, an authoritative but extremely lively and entertaining account of the rise and fall of Gordon Brown and New Labour. Now, yeah. you, you know, well, you know everybody, all the politicians. Yeah. How well do you actually know Blair and Brown? Uh, very well. I was one of the, just really through a combination of timing and my kind of political style, um, I got to know them both well when they were in opposition um and that meant you had they had more time to spend with people like me and so i used to see when blair was leader of the opposition and brown was shadow chancellor both of them quite a lot um for cups of tea and things and a drink sometimes and similarly in government i still saw them quite a lot now that was quite unusual because certainly by 1997, if not before, there had already become, in journalism as well as in the government, a divide between those who follow Blair and those who follow Brown. There were Brownite ministers and Blairite ministers. There were Brownite columnists and Blairite columnists. I just skated round it and kept in touch with both of them. Um, Brown's people especially cut off any contact with journalists who were close to Blair, and it happened to some extent the other way round. But I, I saw them both regularly until the very end. You do make the point that uh, that this government, uh, more more than usually, was was completely dominated by just two figures. I mean, presumably yeah. you knew everybody else as well. But I, yeah. I notice you're not writing a book about I don't know uh, Jeff Hoon or <laughs> Hazel Blair. No. Uh, th- these are, two were the uh, w- yeah with with consequences that we're still living through. In fact, you, you uh, quote Roy, Roy Jenkins as saying to you uh, that it must be really hard for political journalists these days because that's all you've got. You've got yeah, two people to was, write about. I remember having... Uh, Roy Jenkins was a fantastic figure because he was, in many ways, a, a, a titanic politician and writer, but still had an interest in relatively young columnists. And... I got to know him quite well. He, I remember having a glass of wine with him once. He said it must have been very, very difficult for people like you because in the 70s, uh, political columnists had me, Ben, Foote, Callaghan, Healy, Thatcher, Portillo, Heseltine, and, and all you've got are Blair and Brown. Is there a dearth and, of political talent these days? I mean, yeah, is, has yeah. something changed? Something very Because you, I mean, you look back at changed. Wilson's cabinet and oh. it's stuffed with... with, with 
towering Absolutely. figures. Absolutely. And you, you just can't imagine, I don't know, Baroness Varsi sitting in that company. Exactly, exactly. There's been, for reasons which are complicated, and, and, and there are lots of reasons, a real decline in big political figures. Um, and the 70s and indeed the 80s were still stuffed full of them. And certainly in the period when I was writing, uh, well, I'm still writing them, but actually it hasn't changed. There are no giants. I mean, Jenkins is absolutely right. As a political columnist or indeed an author, you could have switched a column from what Michael Foote was doing to Tony Benn to David Owen and Roy Jenkins to Hattersley and then to Thatcher to um, Ian Gilmore and the Wets and all of that. And for a long time, there was just this, in the Labour Party anyway, this duopoly well, um, okay. of Blair and Brown who dominated everything to the extent that when they departed, uh, Labour was left with a group of half-formed politicians because they stifled and didn't let anyone else breathe, you know. They or were, indeed go, go, come up with any policies. I mean, you, yeah. you're, you're very clear about how, how completely Gordon Brown had his hands on, on, on the, the, the policy-making apparatus yeah. so that nobody else in the party was free to yeah. come up with a, a Except coherent... Except for Blair. I mean, Blair... I mean, well, what, economic policy, I was uh, In thinking. terms of economic policy, uh, the Treasury um, was completely dominant in a way that was unprecedented. And I don't think people have quite grasped what happened over that period. There was a, see everyone, everything, all the assumptions about that new labor period are wrong. One of them is that this cliche Blair was pro reform and Brown was anti reform. Now you can disagree with what Brown was doing in the treasury, but there was a revolution the Treasury basically became an alternative government and had its hands in whole swathes of domestic policy, which was a cultural revolution for the Treasury. Um, and it, there was this kind of dual scrutiny and rivalry between Number 10 and the Treasury during this period, quite unprecedented in British politics. Um, and... In a weird way, I was talking to someone very close to Brown the other day who was saying to me, at least there was some kind of accountability. That It was completely mad, but whatever came out of number 10 was scrutinised by the Treasury and vice versa. He was saying there isn't that level of scrutiny now, but I mean, I don't think anyone would advocate what happened in the New Labour era, era as a model for government. You don't think you don't think that being at loggerheads and, and unable to work together is, yeah. is, a, is desirable. And, and 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 that's the other myth. Actually, people say oh, they it was a, just a personality thing. You know, Brown wanted Blair's job. Blair resented the fact that he wanted his job, and they fell out and couldn't talk. It was much deeper than that. They had two very different political philosophies. And again, I think that hasn't come out clearly yet. You characterise Brown as being slightly disdainful of, of Blair uh, uh, as a superficial figure, yeah. you know, more more interested in, in doing something uh, and, and being seen to do something and, and slightly less interested in, in what it is that he's doing. Some, yeah. Somebody said that he's, he's a bit like uh, uh, John F. Kennedy in that, in that yeah. he, he was a footballer who, who wanted to score the goals and he wasn't that interested in which end he scored them, but yeah, he wanted I'm, to be the one who scored. I mean, I think you can... I mean, he's a complicated uh, figure to place on the political spectrum. Um, but in terms of policy making, um, I don't think he was 
as thought through as Brown. I mean, Brown had terrible flaws, but he used to rush back from meetings with Blair on policy matters and say to Ed Balls and Ed Miliband, the, his two advisers, Tony never reads the papers. And he didn't mean the newspapers, he meant the detailed the policy papers. papers. Now, Brown read papers to a fault. I mean, he Did read Did he work everything. too hard? That's one of the things. That, you, you, you make uh, the point about how hard Brown worked, and with mm. every setback, he just went back and worked harder. Worked harder. Did he work too hard? Yeah, he had it in... He was the most fascinating mix in that some ways he was much the most intelligent figure in British politics over that period, I think from 92 to his departure. And he was in some ways the most forensic. He has had no sense how to manage time and how to prioritise. And um, it was almost a form of illiteracy. Blair rightly in his memoir said he was emotionally illiterate. Um, but he had a, a an inability to recognise how to prioritise and compartmentalise and delegate. Uh, and that was his fault. But in terms of policy making, he could much more clearly see through the consequences of policy than Blair. I mean, Blair tends to say, well, look, you know, if we set up a free school, great. You know, if people like the school, great. Whereas Brown and Bulls and Ed Miliband will say, what about the consequences for the rest of the for the other schools, you know. And Blair would say, look, let these hosp the best hospitals run themselves. And Brown would say, well, if they go bankrupt, we've just raised taxes to pay for these things. How do we deal with it? And I think on every major issue, the euro being another, in policy terms, Brown and Ed Balls were, were, were titanic and Blair was a sort of, you know, uh, average um, in terms of communication, Blair was a titan, um, one of the great communicators of British politics. He was the, he was the best of his generation, wasn't he? By but miles. Blair, Blair could tell you something that you knew wasn't true, and you would you would want it to be true because he'd said it. Yeah, although I, you know, I, the the book is quite critical of Blair as a policymaker, and I think, as I say, the the whole contortion of the New Labour era was basically by the end. He was closer to Cameron and the Tory party than he was on the centre-left. Brown was on the centre-left, but was frightened that most of the country wasn't. And these contortions explain everything, basically. Um, but I don't think Blair lied or was dishonest. I think that he was an advocate. And in British politics, advocacy leads people into all kinds of dodgy areas, as you could see with, with the war in Iraq and other things. But he did have views. I mean, his views on education and NHS reform, and to some extent tax and spend, although he changed on that one, uh, was closer to Cameron's. Cameron uh, was brilliant in recognising that the best thing for him to do to undermine Blair was to support him. And that was a key moment. Um, and Brown recognised the dangers of that moment. And in a way, it became a trap for Brown when he became leader as well, I think. Brown is often characterised as a, as a, a failure. And yet, uh, you, you've said yourself that, uh, you know, he spent 20 years at the top of yeah. British politics. He was, he was uninterrupted shadow chancellor and chancellor of the Exchequer for yeah. 15 years yeah. and, and then achieved the, the top job. So th this is not any, anybody's definition of a, a, a failure. Yeah. He, he must have been startlingly good at some things yeah 
that that's again it's very interesting um in a hundred years time when everyone's calmed down about this period because <laughs> they'll be dead uh he will be recognized as a a giant and uh an extraordinary triumph um virtually no leader in waiting ever becomes a leader he got there uh and to be a labor chancellor from 97 to 2007 is you know phenomenal has anybody else been chancellor for that period? i can't no, I, I, i've read no. um you know roy jenkins book about the yeah. chancellors and and then yeah. uh, edmund dell did one about post war ones that's right and i can't remember a single chancellor who who no. lasted anything like that long no and especially a labor chancellor they're usually swept aside by some sort of economic disaster um and of course uh, and the reason I was going to, I didn't know where to start this book, but in the end, it only makes new labour only made sense this whole period uh, by starting in 1992 after Labour's fourth election defeat. And I argue in the book, and it's by no means uh, without severe criticism of Brown, but I think what he did between 92 and 97 to make Labour electable, but at the same time have a plan, Ed Balls is hugely involved in this. Uh, had a plan to raise money to invest in public services was titanic, brilliant politics. Um, now, at the moment, he is so out of favour that he, he, he won't get credit for anything. But over time, well, you I say think he won't get change. credit for anything. You, uh, later on, you 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 make you you show in detail how his uh, premiership was rescued by the worst financial and economic catastrophe yeah. in more than half a century. Um, he, I, I think he still gets credit for that, doesn't he? I think m- uh, most people can see that he, he was uh, instrumental. No, I don't think the- he does at the moment. I think on the whole, he there is a sense that he was to blame for... I mean, I think the Conservatives are, have won the argument so far on they inherited a catastrophe uh, and Brown left behind a catastrophe. The, he was, in the short term, saved by the financial crisis because... Um, he was right for it, and the idea that any of the Do you think other, he'll be vindicated? Do you think that history will I, I look think back there's and a, say, a high chance thank of him goodness being, for uh, Brown. Yeah, I think over time, in America, they're saying it already, that uh, he, I mean, well, this Krugman cliche the you know, that saved the world is, 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 is <laughs> widely believed in America. And the cheerleader. Uh, he saved the cheerleader too. Indeed, indeed. Uh, <laughs> but um, for the time being, I think here in Britain, he will be uh, seen as culpable and is, you know, one of the reasons why he's had to disappear from public view is there's no point in him, him appearing. I think he's viewed with such disdain at the moment, and, and emotions are running very high, not only outside the Labour Party, but within um, a lot of people. The, the Blair and Mandelson memoirs uh, were utterly condemning and scathing of him. But th- Although Mandel- book- Mandelson's was was moderately amusing, uh, inadvertently so. Mandelson's yeah. uh, Mandelson in his memoir actually has a point where he says, uh, apparently without irony, that Gordon was saying to him, "You're always right, Peter. Thank goodness you're here. You are right <laughs> yeah. again, Peter." And, and there's no suggestion that Mandelson is 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 smiling when is, he types is, this. Is challenging this uh, assessment of himself. Uh, no, um, that again is one of, I mean relationships within New Labour, although overplayed by, uh, in some books, I think, remain utterly compelling. Um, and I'm not surprised there have been so many dramas about it. And it is a theme of this book, the, the personal relationship. Oh, it's a political it's thriller, the book. Uh, yeah, the, the, uh, and, and, and there's a sort of, 
uh, and and the Mandelson thing is in a way illustrative of the Greek tragedy that was being played out because if someone has said to Brown when he was at the height of his powers as a chancellor and people forget he was very popular for a time as well as successful economically that he would have brought Peter Mandelson back who became irrationally from the Brownites perspective the hate figure I think he'd have taken, you know, just gone and destroyed himself. I mean, the the idea would have been beyond contemplation. Then there he was as a prime minister, desperate, clinging on, pleading with him to come. Back. I had not realised though that he he tried to get uh, Campbell, Alistair Campbell, to uh, yeah, to go but, into the Lords to, uh, to, as it were, take the 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 role that eventually he yeah called the Madison first back discussion. For was bringing Alistair Campbell back. And well, that's fascinating. Ed Balls, in the, there was a real drama in the summer of 2008 when they thought David Miliband was going to mount a coup. And um, they talked together on his holiday in Suffolk, supposed holiday. I don't think he had a break at all uh, beyond hiring a personal trainer. Um, Touch of Pilates on the beach. A bit of Pilates, uh, on Madelson's advice. Uh when they were discussing their rapprochement, um, Man- I asked Madison about it afterwards. He said, we had conversations of brutal candour for several months. And I said to him, you need to not only change your public persona, but go deep within, find out why you get so angry, do some yoga, stop drinking coffee. Anyway, apparently he tried to do these things um, but Brown was surprised. Brown, Brown, for an incredibly smart person, seemed to have no understanding of himself and the way he was perceived. No, no, that's. I mean, that's right. I mean, there are many sort of uh, mysteries about him. I mean, he is an avid reader and lover of reading. His own writing is deadly dull. Uh, he is fascinated by the media and communication. His own image was catastrophic, um, and. He, for someone who early on had sharp political antennae, had no self-awareness, and uh, you know, especially in his dealings with other people. And furthermore, uh, he he was obsessed with the media as well, yeah. wasn't he? I, I, I'm, as much as I was Blair. interested to discover that um, Paul Dacre, editor of the Daily Mail, was a close friend. Yeah, which is counterintuitive, utterly bizarre, <laughs> and baffled uh, his otherwise completely devoted. Uh, entourage, you know, the two Eds couldn't believe it, but they used to, for a time, uh, he met Dacre weekly, and they talked through things, um, and he invited him up to Stratford for to see a Hamlet and things like this, I mean, but I think it was absolutely, it was a crude calculation on his part, um, that to get the, he thought for a time the male would back him. Um, and say vote Labour, which shows. It's funny. Uh, I, I never thought the mail would back him. No, but they were. They to the very end, they were pretty nice about it. So it was worth it. Um, but I think the cultivation was a calculated one. Others have other theories that they genuinely had a sort of shared Calvinistic outlook on life. Uh, I don't think. I think Brown thought right. He, he seems to like me. I'm going to work on this one. Um, and um, but in the end, of course. Uh, like the other papers. I mean, he spent a lot of time wooing Murdoch, um, but they all they all deserted him. Um, and you could see, I mean, I'm now very clear, he was, from the beginning, as Prime Minister, trapped. And the media thing was just one example of many where things were almost 
do to turn against it. Well, yeah, but you also you you use phrases like a spectacular mistake and colossal error mm. quite a lot with reference to him, mo- mostly when he's um, he's prime minister. Prime minister, yeah. It, it, yeah. It, it seems it seems ironic that uh, somebody for whom the job of prime minister for for Brown always was to get some things done. He had an agenda. He had a clear. A sense mm. of what he wanted to achieve, and by the time he gets to that position, yes, he's he's obsessed with how he appears, and he's obsessed yeah. with keeping the job, and yeah. he's lost his grip on his yeah. agenda. I mean, part of the Greek tragedy is exactly that he did have early on a brilliant, uh, in my view, strategic uh, set of priorities which were ruthlessly implemented over a very long period of time in the most stressful circumstances. But the prime ministership came at least three years too late. Uh, Ed Miliband said to me he'd run out of juice. Partly he was mentally and physically exhausted by the time he reached the thing that he had dreamed of reaching. So that was one part of the sort of Greek tragedy. Another one was that there was no route available to him by the time he got it in which he could have shown his distinctive private plan for power, which would have been to shift Britain a bit more to the left than Blair. But he was frightened in advance of an election of expressing anything that hinted at that because he wanted the newspapers to back him um, as they had backed Blair and he had a party management issue in that he wanted to keep the Blairites happy before an election. I think if he had won an election, he might have become a more distinctive voice. Should he have called the election? then? um, Because you you identify the point at which his his premiership failed as that that, uh, election that never was in 2007, in the autumn. Catastrophe. When when he he implied that he would go to the country, then he decided not to. But he thought he could play the the Tories off. He thought he could use it as a stick to beat the Tories. That was a terrible miscalculation, an example of how his antennae had become completely blunted by that. So should he have gone? No, I think the mistake was to talk it up. I'm of the view, Ed Balls is passionately of the opposite view, but I'm of the view that if he had called the election when he called it off, he would have lost. Um, It was the the, the polls were showing a small Tory lead and uh, the momentum was moving away from Yeah, but the Tories have always needed a a 10% lead to get an absolute majority. Look what happened to them in the election when it did come. But but if the Tories had got close to Labour or in terms of the vote taking them over, he would have been a, a diminished he would have been a diminished figure. And they'll have all said, well, Blair won. He's only been in for three months. He's lost millions of votes already. You know, and then there would have been the financial crisis. I think it's another example of the trap he was in uh, from which there was no escape. You know, people were going to talk about an early election. Uh, if he had called it, he would have been either diminished or lost. The fact that he didn't call it destroyed his leadership. I mean, there were... Um, and it not only destroyed leadership, it destroyed him. I mean... Uh, I saw him a couple of times in the autumn that followed that decision. And for someone who was so calculating and devious and all the rest of it, he was utterly transparent as a political figure. And he was pale and he had his head down and um, he was clearly in a terrible state. And and number 10 was in a terrible state during that period. Um, And he had some rotten luck as well. Everything started to go wrong 
in ways that were not directly connected with him at all. The, those discs were lost with everyone's child benefit details on. Which, nothing uh, to do while, with him. While but, a, a, a terrible cock-up was yeah. trivial from the point of view of, of Completely. the big picture. And um, Alice Darling was in the Treasury. It's, it's, you know, he's no idea where the disc went, but no one ever found it. So, um, but it, there was a growing... He was determined to show that he was pure compared with Blair, with all the police investigations. Suddenly a load of police investigations started while he was in charge, so that blew that one. Um, he was incredibly unlucky. It was as if the gods felt that an order had been disturbed and they were going to go for him. Um, and But, you see, by the end, I mean, you know, it was... It, it was not a humiliating end. It seems so now because, as I say, everyone is dismissing him. Uh, but that is a phase most primates go through. But the end, when it came, was not a slaughter. Um, you know, there was even a chance Nobody that he was going to stay on. Nobody won. Um, and so this incredible, willful appetite for politics and power got him through it to a point where he didn't leave in a humiliating fashion. And similarly, actually, Blair didn't. I mean, they, they managed incredibly the choreography of politics in a way that um, for all the passion being spent behind the scenes allowed them a degree of dignity in both cases. But but the, the irony still is that he, he was much more powerful as Chancellor, than yeah. he, he ever was as PM. That's a, yeah, and, and I mean, m m more powerful, you think, than can possibly have been comfortable for, for, for Tony Blair. Yeah. I, I, I wonder if Tony Blair should have tried to assert himself. Uh, you, well, you know, he, he wanted to have uh, Charlie Whelan fired when, yeah. when they got into government. Yeah. Uh, and he didn't press that. He could... I, I, could he have? I was going to ask if he could have um, fired, um, fired, well, well, fired it's really Brown in 2005. Yeah. Um, I went to the launch of Jonathan Powell's book recently, and Jonathan Powell ran Blair's office throughout this period. And Powell and Brown, Brown never spoke to Powell, which was a disgrace on Brown's part. But Powell's book is a very one-sided... He wasn't good at people, though, was no, he? No, <laughs> Powell's book, he gets his revenge in his book, is an utterly one-sided account which portrays Brown as a mad monster. Um, now, at the launch, he held a sort of seminar at the launch with Andrew Adonis, and all of Blair's number 10 were in there. And every question was basically, how, why did Blair put up with him? You know, one after another. And even Brown's wife, uh, uh, Jonathan Powell's wife asked a question, saying, look, every weekend, Jonathan, used to come home and say, that's it, Tony's decided he's going to get rid of him, it's this week, the champagne's out this coming week, he's going to do it. And he never did it. Um, so they all wanted him out. Now the reason is that Tony Blair, in the end, um, Tony, one of Tony Blair's qualities is he can recognise uh, the qualities of others too much sometimes. He was too generous in his assessments of some people. I, he once said to me, he thought Alistair Campbell was a genius about reading the news and things, and he was probably right about that. And he, he knew that Brown, he, he, in fairness to Blair, he writes it in his book, which was otherwise fairly condemning of Brown, was a big, big figure who brought, in the end, indispensable strengths to the government. 
And I think even deeper down, I mean, Blair writes in the book, his book, wrongly, that he was in charge of the economy. Completely nonsense. If if he had got rid of Brown, who would, there was no one else who had given any thought to centre-left economic policymaking uh, available to him. Um, Blair himself had given no thought to it. All of that side was left to Brown and Balls. They were the only two who had really thought through how you could have a vote winning. So he didn't. Ha- he didn't have a replacement for it. Didn't have a replacement. I, I mean, he, his line is always: if you put him on the back benches, it would have been utterly explosive, and that's true as well. But I think it was a more fundamental thing that Brown, for a long time, steered Labour uh, into a position where they could put big money into public services, put up taxes, and still win elections. Um, because it was within a sort of macroeconomic uh, framework devised by Balls that had won the support of the city and business and all the rest of it. Um, it was a massive achievement. And on one level, only on one, because Blair used to fume about him the rest of the time, he knew it and wasn't going to move him. Do you know if Gordon Brown has seen this book? Your I, th- book, I think I've seen him since. Uh, uh, and um, he's, he said, how's it going and stuff. Um, but I don't know. I, you, you must never discuss books with the people, the people you've written about. Been written about. <laughs> I mean, I have had some feedback from lots of other people who appear in it uh, more fleetingly than Blair and Brown. And on the whole, positive on both sides. I mean, you know, I think some of Blair's people are a bit disappointing. I disappointed I don't sort of rave about him in a positive way. Um, but yeah, I've spoken to a lot of the others, uh, and on the whole, they're very nice about it. And say they they think it's a, the, the the account that gets closest to what happened over that sort of extraordinary. 15, well, 16 I'll give you some years. feedback. I thought it was gripping and highly entertaining. I, I oh, thought well, it was I'm a, thrilled. A, thank a, you. A, just a terrific read. Oh, well, so, thank you very Steve much. Richards, thank you very much. Whatever it takes, by Steve Richards. It's published by Fourth Estate. It's uh, fourteen pounds ninety nine. That was Tim Haig Reads Books, presented by Tim Haig. Tim Haig Reads Books is a Green Shoot production. More details can be found at www.green-shoot.com and Tim can be contacted on tim at green-shoot.com.